This episode is brought to you by Terminix. There's one thing we can all agree on. Dealing with pests is a pain. But luckily, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. So if your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened, I'm okay, other people have it worse, it doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd start to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. On March 26, 1946, a man named Willard B. Keela sat down to a personal meeting with the head of the Manhattan Project, General Leslie Groves. Keela, a peach farmer from New Jersey, was concerned about chemical emissions from a Manhattan Project-run factory. These emissions had poisoned his lands, killing his crops and making people and farm animals sick. When Keela and his neighbors threatened a lawsuit against the government, Groves offered a settlement, claiming that releasing the data necessary to litigate the issue would be a threat to national security. Some farmers received as little as $200, the equivalent of about $2,700 in 2018 money, in exchange for the loss of their lands, their health, and their livelihoods. The poisonous compound that obliterated those New Jersey farms was fluoride, a component still found in drinking water throughout the United States and the world to this day. Conspiracy? Maybe. Coincidence? Maybe. Complicated? Absolutely. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, the ParCast Network podcast where we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. 
I'm Carter Roy. I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can listen to previous episodes of Conspiracy Theories, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. Many of you have asked us how to help support the show, and if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star review online. This is our second and final episode covering the Manhattan Project. Last week, we discussed the official story behind the United States program to develop an atomic bomb during World War II. This week, we'll explore some conspiracy theories surrounding the once top secret program. Conspiracy theory number one. J. Robert Oppenheimer, the physicist who oversaw the creation of the atomic bomb, was secretly a spy for the Soviet Union. He passed key information to U.S. enemies so that the Soviets could build a bomb of their own. Conspiracy theory number two. The atomic bomb was the key breakthrough that encouraged aliens from outer space to make first contact with Earth. Since that initial contact, the United States and other governments have kept the existence of extraterrestrials secret from the public. Conspiracy theory number three. Since 1944, scientists have misrepresented the toxicity of fluoride. The cover-up began when a Manhattan Project factory accidentally exposed civilians to the deadly chemical, and it continues to this day. We'll also briefly touch base on some other more out-there theories, covering pagan cults and secret government programs to study interdimensional travel. But first, Any discussion of the Manhattan Project must include one of its most notable scientists, James Robert Oppenheimer. A physicist and philosopher, Oppenheimer oversaw operations at the Manhattan Project's Los Alamos, New Mexico location. As we discussed last week, Oppenheimer had mixed feelings about the military applications of his research, and after atomic bombs were deployed against civilian cities in Japan, he grew deeply critical of the bomb he had helped create. Oppenheimer also had deep and documented ties to the United States Communist Party. This brings us to conspiracy theory number one. J. Robert Oppenheimer worked as a spy passing American atomic secrets along to the Soviet Union for their bomb program. While he never formally became a member of the Communist Party, as a young man, Oppenheimer donated large sums of money to teachers and longshoremen's unions, which were later labeled Communist Fronts. He also served as a committee member for the Spanish Republicans, another communist organization, and he had numerous friends who were active with the Communist Party including his brother and sister-in-law. He regularly attended official party meetings as well as casual get-togethers with communist friends. While Oppenheimer never formally paid dues to the party, he did make a recurring $1,000 monthly donation to the cause through his friend Dr. Addis, a party member. Those donations continued until April 1942, shortly before he joined the Manhattan Project. Moreover, for three years, Oppenheimer was romantically involved with a woman named Jean Tatlock, a known member of the San Francisco Communist Party. 
They dated from 1936 to 1939, and at times they even seriously considered marriage. But their relationship ended in 1939, and shortly thereafter, Oppenheimer began to date Catherine Puning Harrison, who herself was a former Communist Party member and widow of a communist activist. Oppenheimer married Catherine the next year, in 1940. Although Oppenheimer and Tatlock broke off their formal romantic relationship in 1939, they remained friends and lovers for years. Their affair continued in secret even after Oppenheimer married Catherine. Meanwhile, Oppenheimer joined the Manhattan Project in 1942, where he oversaw operations at Los Alamos, New Mexico. As we discussed last week, Oppenheimer's many communist connections nearly disqualified him from the Manhattan Project, and he only passed his security clearance thanks to the intervention of the head of the Manhattan Project, General Groves. After joining the project, Oppenheimer was under constant scrutiny. Manhattan Project officials opened his mail, wiretapped his office, monitored his home telephone, and secretly tailed him at all times. In June of 1943, Oppenheimer visited Tatlock in San Francisco, but he lied to his Manhattan Project handlers about the purpose of the trip. He told them he was traveling to recruit an assistant. He later claimed he lied to cover up the fact that he and Tatlock were having an affair. After all, he was a married man. But some believed he lied for another reason. Tatlock was a known communist, Perhaps there was an even more scandalous purpose for their visit. Like passing along plans for the atom bomb? Or it may have been that, as you've just pointed out, Tatlock was a communist and Oppenheimer didn't want to draw any more suspicion about his own former communist ties. Either way, the fib didn't work. As was their standard practice, two Army counterintelligence agents tailed him during his trip to San Francisco. They saw Oppenheimer and Tatlock go out to dinner together and then return to spend the night in Tatlock's apartment. The visit concluded with Oppenheimer and Tatlock choosing to end their affair for good. This was the last time Oppenheimer would see Tatlock alive. Seven months later, on January 5, 1944, Tatlock committed suicide by drowning herself in her bathtub. She was found dead in the bathroom, her head submerged in the bathwater. Jean's autopsy showed that she had eaten a large meal laced with chloral hydrate before her suicide. Chloral hydrate is a barbiturate that induces drowsiness. Jean, as a professional psychiatrist, would have had access to chloral hydrate and could have drugged herself before plunging her head into her full bathtub so that she would be too inebriated to reemerge before she suffocated. Besides its psychiatric uses, Chloral hydrate is also a common date rape drug. Perhaps, rather than choosing to kill herself, Tatlock was drugged and then pushed into a full bathtub. Such a murder plot would leave behind very little evidence for investigators. While the nature of Tatlock's suicide is unusual, the presence of drugs in her system is not proof on its own that she was murdered. However, some, including Tatlock's brother, long believed that Jean was assassinated. The CIA's Director of Operations Planning testified in a 1975 Senate hearing that throughout the 1940s and 1950s, the CIA kidnapped or assassinated numerous suspected communist agents. 
Tatlock as an active communist with demonstrated influence over a top Manhattan Project scientist could have made a natural target. It's possible that Oppenheimer's friendly visit is exactly what ensured her death. But the evidence isn't there to prove it. The CIA has denied any involvement in Tatlock's death, and no records exist that suggest any link between Tatlock's so-called suicide and the CIA. As for Oppenheimer, at the time of Tatlock's death, his enthusiasm for communism had already fizzled. In his very own words, his involvement with the Communist Party was very brief and very intense. From 1938 to 1943, he grew increasingly disillusioned with the Soviet Union. In spite of these claims, Oppenheimer's communist past did him no favors when a major problem came to light. The test site he oversaw in Los Alamos had become a hotbed for Soviet espionage. Even though the U.S. and the Soviet Union were allies during World War II, the U.S. was not about to share their top-secret, ultra-destructive weapon with their comrades in arms. As soon as the war ended and alliances were dissolved, whichever country held the nuclear bomb would be the most feared nation on the planet. The Los Alamos site, nicknamed Project Y, was a natural target for Soviet infiltration. And as it was eventually revealed, some of the most prolific Soviet spies were able to infiltrate Los Alamos under Oppenheimer's watch. One of the most successful Soviet spies was Klaus Fuchs. Fuchs was a German communist who immigrated to England in 1933 as a refugee from the Nazis. While living in England, he studied physics in England's top universities. While Fuchs was studying at Birmingham University, he accepted an assistant position with the British Atomic Bomb Development Program. In 1942, one of Fuchs' friends from the Communist Party connected him with Soviet handlers so that Fuchs could relay top-secret information about the bomb to the Soviet Union. In 1943, the United States government brought numerous British scientists, including Fuchs, to the U.S. to apply their expertise to the American bomb program. Fuchs joined the Manhattan Project at its Los Alamos location, where he worked under J. Robert Oppenheimer's supervision. After Fuchs concluded his work with the Manhattan Project, he returned to England, where he worked on British efforts to develop a hydrogen bomb, continuing to relay secrets to his Soviet handlers all the while. Fuchs was instrumental in helping the Soviet Union build and test their own atomic bomb in 1949, that same year, British investigators finally identified Fuchs as a spy and arrested him. After his arrest, Fuchs confessed and named his collaborators both in the UK and the US. This led investigators to another Los Alamos-based spy named David Greenglass. With the help of his sister and brother-in-law, Ethel and Julius Rosenberg, Greenglass also passed atomic bomb-related documents along to the Soviet Union. Investigators suspected the existence of yet another spy at Los Alamos, but they were never able to identify him. It wasn't until years later that Theodore Hall, another physicist based at Los Alamos, would confess to relaying atomic secrets to the Soviet Union. Besides the actual spies, many of Oppenheimer's fellow engineers were either communists, former communists, or suspected communists. 
After World War II ended in 1945, the Manhattan Project was restructured into a new program called the Atomic Energy Commission. The head of the Atomic Energy Commission was a man named Louis Strauss, who took a strong disliking towards Oppenheimer. The exposure of multiple Project Y employees as spies only confirmed Strauss's suspicions. Besides his tenuous connection to Fuchs, little evidence existed to connect Oppenheimer with Soviet espionage. In fact, in 1943, the FBI bugged the home of Oppenheimer's friend Steve Nelson, a known Soviet spy. In the recordings, they heard Nelson complain to his acquaintances about how secretive Oppenheimer was about his work and how scrupulously he resisted Nelson's attempts to coax information out of him. By all appearances, Oppenheimer was never involved in any espionage. A few of his engineers may have been spies, but he wasn't personally responsible for vetting new hires. If anything, the blame should fall on the military for slacking on their background checks. But coming up, we'll see that all his apparent innocence wasn't enough to protect Oppenheimer from suspicion. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least, not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home, like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of bug it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. And with over 95 years of experience, it's no wonder they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In May 1953, an article appeared in Fortune magazine titled, The Hidden Struggle for the H-Bomb, the story of Dr. Oppenheimer's persistent campaign to reverse U.S. military strategy. The article, written by an anonymous contributor, claimed that J. Robert Oppenheimer was a member of a traitorous conspiracy to undermine the very bomb program he had worked to create. The article referenced Oppenheimer's objections to the hydrogen bomb's deployment and his criticisms of violent military policies. While these stances could be attributed to Oppenheimer's long-held pacifism, the article suggested they were instead evidence of his anti-American sentiments. The anonymous author would later be identified as Charles Murphy, an Air Force member along with Louis Strauss, the Atomic Energy Commission head who had long butted heads with Oppenheimer. 
The article spurred the Atomic Energy Commission to immediately revoke Oppenheimer's security clearance and investigate his communist connections. Throughout the investigation, Oppenheimer maintained his innocence. When the hearing concluded on May 23, 1953, the Atomic Energy Commission determined that while Oppenheimer had not broken any laws, he had demonstrated, quote, a serious disregard for the requirements of the security system, end quote. His security clearance would not be reinstated. The investigation and loss of security clearance spelled the end of Oppenheimer's government career. Despite his world-changing work on the atomic bomb, his legacy was now forever tainted. Oppenheimer never won a Nobel Prize, much to the surprise and chagrin of his peers. He spent the last decade of his life teaching at Princeton. And all this for his former political alliance with the Communist Party. He was never convicted of any crime, and his connection with espionage remains tenuous at best. All considered, I give this conspiracy theory a 2 out of 10. Oppenheimer may have had communist sympathies, but that doesn't automatically translate into a penchant for international espionage. Additionally, Oppenheimer was highly critical of the Soviet Union throughout his time with the Manhattan Project. There was no evidence that Oppenheimer was aware of the espionage activities in Los Alamos or that he would have supported those activities if he knew about them. After everything his name has been through, I think it's time to let Dr. Oppenheimer rest in peace. Our next theory also begins with one of Oppenheimer's major achievements the first atomic bomb test in human history on July 16, 1945. Dubbed the Trinity Test, the Manhattan Project's first functional bomb, called the Gadget, exploded in an unpopulated stretch of the New Mexico desert. Three and a half years later, in December 1948, airline crews reported seeing strange lights over the New Mexico sky. These lights, green, glowing, wreathed in fire, traveled from east to west. This brings us to conspiracy theory number two. The development of atomic bombs was a major leap forward in human development, a push forward so dramatic it drew the attention of extraterrestrials. This theory holds that after the first atomic bomb test, aliens initiated contact in order to either warn humanity of the dangers of atomic power or to keep our species in check before we could become an interplanetary threat. Although sightings of unidentified flying objects or UFOs date back prior to World War II, A rash of UFO sightings occurred around Manhattan Project locations during the 1940s and 1950s, including the light sighted in December 1948. Some observers who witnessed the lights over New Mexico believed they were witnessing a meteor shower. The head of the University of New Mexico's Institute of Metrics calculated an impact site based on the so-called meteor's trajectory. But when he went to that location, He found nothing. On December 20th, the green fireballs appeared again. The fireballs looked like they were on course to crash into Earth, but mid-flight, they changed trajectory, continuing to fly parallel to the ground. Nobody who witnessed the fireballs was able to identify them or what had caused them, not even scientists. One theory is that these balls of fire were alien technology, 
And the reason so many of them were spotted so near the atomic bomb testing site was because these aliens were uniquely interested in humanity's development of nuclear weaponry. One advocate of this theory is Edgar Mitchell, an Apollo 14 astronaut and one of the very few human beings to ever set foot on the moon. In 1971, Mitchell publicly claimed that after the Trinity test in New Mexico, Air Force officers attempted more atomic weapons tests, most of which failed due to UFO interference. Mitchell was born and grew up near Roswell, New Mexico, a town famous for a possible alien ship crash in July 1947. While the government claims that the wreckage found in Roswell was simply a downed military balloon, alien and UFO enthusiasts believe that an alien spaceship crashed in Roswell and that the wreck was covered up by the government. Mitchell not only believed the wrecked craft in Roswell was an alien spaceship, he also claimed the Roswell crash was connected to the Manhattan Project. In his opinion, extraterrestrials were rushing to Los Alamos, New Mexico, in order to halt further atomic bomb research and development. We should note that Mitchell's experiences as an astronaut did not entitle him to any classified information about atomic missile development or alien cover-ups. His interest in the paranormal predated his historic trip to the moon, and he knows nothing about Roswell or the Manhattan Project that isn't public knowledge. After the orb sightings in 1947, the late 1940s and 1950s were marked by dozens of flying saucer or UFO sightings. While these unidentified flying objects were sighted all over the world, many, if not most, were around Manhattan Project test sites. The consensus among conspiracy theorists was clear. Aliens had an extensive interest in human atomic bomb tests. And that interest wasn't necessarily benevolent. Former aviator Eric Julian claimed that he was abducted by aliens who revealed to him the true nature of alien life. He suggested that the beings we identify as extraterrestrials are also extratemporal, or time travelers. These beings from another plane of existence were responsible for most, if not all, alien and UFO sightings on Earth in the past half century. His theory gets a bit complicated, but in the simplest terms, Julian believes these extratemporal visitors can travel between times and dimensions and can even control the way they interact with the laws of physics. These beings can change size or shape or choose to exist in an immaterial state at will. When human scientists split atoms, we send ripples through the space-time continuum which disrupt these beings' existence, even if the extraterrestrials are physically far from the split atom. Atomic bomb explosions have the power to destroy or even kill extratemporals, and so they made their initial contact with the people of Earth in order to halt our accidental but still destructive tests. The main problem with this theory is that there's no possible way to prove or disprove it. If these beings really aren't bound by time, space, dimension, or the laws of physics as we understand them, there's no concrete way to produce evidence of their existence. Even Julian acknowledges this issue, saying in his book, quote, 
one cannot explain UFOs and paranormal phenomena with our current means of investigation, nor even with the present interpretation we have of the universe that surrounds us." End quote. Additionally, Julian isn't a credible source about alien activity. Julian claimed that aliens warned him a comet would crash into the Atlantic Ocean on May 25, 2006, triggering massive, deadly tsunamis with 200-meter-high waves. He published his prediction with the Exopolitics Institute, a nonprofit organization dedicated to extraterrestrial issues. In spite of assurances from NASA and other space agencies that there were no comets on a course to crash into the Earth that day, Julian's prediction incited panic, especially in Morocco, where many people evacuated their homes, fearing the deadly waves. As we now know, no massive comet struck Earth in May of 2006 or at any other time in recent history. After Julian's false prediction, the Exopolitics Institute issued a public statement distancing themselves from him. Even if Julian's reliability doesn't hold up, there are plenty of other ufologists and alien conspiracy enthusiasts who see a connection between the first atomic bombs and the rash of alien saucer sightings shortly thereafter. These saucers never landed, nor did they make verbal contact, so ufologists can only speculate on their intentions. However, given the many UFO sightings at or near nuclear missile sites, most UFO enthusiasts agree that the aliens want to slow or halt the development of atomic bombs. For example, during a missile test launch in fall of 1964, Lieutenant Jacobs at California's Vandenberg Air Force Base photographed an unidentified flying object. According to Jacobs, the UFO intercepted and fired upon the dummy warhead launched from the ICBM. Jacobs never publicly produced those photographs. He claimed that the government confiscated and classified all evidence of the test launch, erasing even the evidence that this launch ever occurred. Three years later, in March 1967, strange lights hovered in the sky above Malmstrom Air Force Base in Montana. Air Force Captain Robert Solis was stationed underground and didn't witness the lights firsthand, but he monitored Air Force computers that reported that the fissile materials inside the base's nuclear silos had been disabled. That sounds like an unlikely coincidence. Maybe. An alternate explanation for all the UFO sightings since the mid-1940s would be that these sightings reflect public anxiety about the atomic bomb and its development. The Cold War introduced a new, deadly threat to the public, and that anxiety was transferred into a mass hysteria about aliens. And I hate to bring this up, but it seems too obvious not to mention. It's possible the reason unidentified flying objects are often spotted near military bases is because this is where new aircraft are tested. Overall, I give this theory a 5 out of 10. The sheer number of reports from former military officials of strange lights, UFOs, or disabled nuclear silos are too numerous to ignore. That said, none of these witnesses have produced any concrete evidence to back up their claims. Perhaps these former Air Force officers are all lying or imagining the UFOs, but the consistency of their claims suggests that there might be something there. 
until our time-traveling interdimensional alien visitors choose to reveal themselves to the public, we may never know for sure. For our next conspiracy theory, we'll turn our attention inward, into our own bodies. Up next, we'll determine if Manhattan Project scientists are guilty of intentionally poisoning the American public. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem, sneakers and streetwear so fresh, every step feels fly. eBay gets it, so look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love, and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Now, back to the story. In 1943 and 1944, E.I. DuPont du Nemours Company, a New Jersey chemical facility, was recruited to produce fluoride for the Manhattan Project. Meanwhile, a short distance away, peach farmers noticed that their crops were suffering. The peaches weren't the only living thing that suffered once the nearby chemical plant began producing fluoride. Cows, horses, and even the people who ate the peaches grew sick. Mildred Giordano, who lived on one of the peach farms, testified to reporters, quote, I remember our horses looked sick and were too stiff to work, end quote. In 1946, Manhattan Project officials investigated the peach farms to determine if there was any connection between the blighted crops and sickly animals and the fluoride production a few hours away. While there's no official record of this investigation or its findings, a supposed leaked memo dated August 27, 1945, suggests that Manhattan Project officials knew they had poisoned civilians and covered up the dangers of fluoride poisoning in order to protect themselves from lawsuits. Conspiracy theory number three. For the past six decades, the United States government has stifled any investigation into the toxicity of fluoride, and has even allowed the poisonous substance to be added to drinking water even though they know that fluoride is dangerous. Before we delve into the conspiracy theory, let's touch on the official story of fluoride's supposed medical benefits. Fluoride sometimes occurs naturally in drinking water. The controversy revolves around artificial water fluoridation, adding fluoride to water that contains little or no fluoride naturally. For millions of years, humans drank naturally fluoridated water, but they didn't begin to intentionally add fluoride to water until after a study performed by a dentist named Dr. Frederick McKay in 1901. McKay moved to Colorado Springs, Colorado in 1901 and was surprised to find many locals had brown discoloration on their teeth. Investigations showed that brown teeth were harder and more resistant to tooth decay than non-stained teeth. McKay invited another dentist, Dr. G.V. Black, who investigated further and found the same brown stains in residents of Oakley, Idaho and Bauxite, Arkansas. They theorized that the culprit may be something in the water, although they weren't able to identify the exact cause. A chemist named H.V. Churchill later found Black and McKay's report and used a more advanced technology to analyze the water in bauxite. The test results showed high levels of fluoride in the town's water supply. 
The next question for dentists was how to find a concentration of fluoride that would allow for its benefits, strengthen teeth and resistance to decay, while avoiding its negative impacts, unsightly brown stains on teeth, which were dubbed dental fluorosis. The U.S. Public Health Service performed tests measuring the natural fluoride concentration in several municipal water supplies and comparing rates of tooth decay and tooth discoloration among populations who drank naturally fluoridated water. By 1942, they determined that discoloration was very rare at concentrations of one part per million or less. Ultimately, there is no universal perfect level of fluoride. Due to variances from one person's body to the next, a fluoride concentration that provides ideal results in one person may be too high and cause brown staining for another. But the Public Health Service determined that maximizing the health benefits for most of the population was worth a small percentage of people experiencing dental fluorosis. Grand Rapids, Michigan became the first city to implement artificial water fluoridation in 1945 and the technique took off from there. According to the CDC, as of 2014, 66.3% of the U.S. population is serviced by fluoridated water. But fluoridation isn't without its drawbacks. In a five-year study conducted by the National Center for Health Statistics from 1999 to 2004, researchers determined that almost one-fourth of Americans had experienced some form of dental fluorosis. While the majority of impacted people experienced only mild fluorosis, 2% of the American population suffered from moderate fluorosis, and less than 1% suffered from severe levels. Severe dental fluorosis can damage a tooth's enamel, and in some cases, fluorosis will spread throughout a person's body and become skeletal fluorosis. This condition, in which fluoride accumulates around bones and joints, leads to pain and joint stiffness. From 1962 to 2015, the U.S. Public Health Service recommended that municipal water services fluoridate at a rate of 0.7 to 1.2 milligrams of fluoride per liter of water. In 2015, the Public Health Service revised their recommendations, dropping the recommended concentration to only 0.7 milligrams per liter. At the time the new recommendations were released, more than 99% of all fluoridated water systems were fluoridating their water at a concentration greater than the new recommended amount. Officially, the U.S. Public Health Service decreased the recommended amount of fluoride in drinking water because, by that time, Americans were getting more fluoride from other sources, such as toothpaste. You'll notice this story so far doesn't involve the Manhattan Project. That's because officially there's no connection between the two. The most that water fluoridation and the Manhattan Project have in common is that they both involved fluoride and began during the same time frame. But perhaps that's just what the government wants you to think. Unofficially, fluorosis is just one of several negative side effects of fluoride consumption. And the leaders of the Manhattan Project suppressed the negative impacts of fluoride consumption to protect themselves from lawsuits. To be fair, this wouldn't be the only time Manhattan Project officials covered up evidence of their own dangerous practices. As we discussed last week, when survivors of the atomic blasts in Hiroshima and Nagasaki began exhibiting symptoms of radiation sickness or atomic plague, 
The head of the Manhattan Project, General Groves, stifled all reporting on the sickness in order to hide evidence of American complicity. The government has also covered up their fair share of deadly experiments that occurred within the U.S. Just to briefly touch on a few examples, beginning in 1932, researchers for the Tuskegee Syphilis Study intentionally infected unknowing citizens with syphilis. Beginning in 1956, researchers intentionally infected school children with hepatitis in a study approved by the New York Department of Health. For a decade in the 1950s and 1960s, CIA researchers with MKUltra drugged unknown participants with LSD to test its effectiveness as a mind control drug. And throughout the 50s and 60s, the Atomic Energy Commission, the post-war rebranding of the Manhattan Project, conducted multiple secret experiments testing radioactive compounds on unwitting civilians many of them on pregnant women and newborn babies. As far as ethical experimentation goes, the U.S. government doesn't have the greatest track record. Conspiracy theorists believe that water fluoridation, like MKUltra, is a program for government mind control. A gland in the center of the human brain, called the pineal gland, accumulates fluoride over time. The pineal gland is responsible for regulating sleep cycles and plays a role in initiating puberty. Some also believe that a fluoridated pineal gland can impact a person's ability to rebel against authority. A fluoridated population is a docile population, willing to stand by and let the government get away with almost anything. The only problem? Studies have failed to show any connection between the pineal gland and obedience. While it's true that the pineal gland stores fluoride, no studies have demonstrated that fluoride actually affects the pineal gland's functioning in any way. A 2012 Harvard study demonstrated a connection between childhood fluoride consumption and lower IQ scores. While this isn't exactly mind control in the traditional sense, one could argue that a less intelligent population is less likely to critically engage or challenge the powers that be. The Harvard study tracked IQ scores for children living in rural areas with naturally fluoridated water, which often has a concentration at least two times greater than the recommended level. When scientists tracked IQ scores among children who drank water at recommended concentration levels, they found no differences between children who drank fluoridated or unfluoridated water. So let's rule out fluoride as a mind control drug and turn our attention to another claim. Fluoride can cause cancer. In 1990, the U.S. National Toxicology Program tested whether fluoridated water could cause an elevated risk of a bone cancer called osteosarcoma. The study found no link between fluoridated water and cancer of any sort. More studies conducted by the U.S. Public Health Service and the National Research Council, the U.K.'s National Health Service, and the European Scientific Committee on Health and Environmental Risks have all supported the conclusion that fluoridated water does not cause or increase the risk of cancer. But the Harvard School of Public Health ran a 2006 study with very different results. This study found that boys exposed to high levels of fluoridated drinking water in childhood had an elevated risk of developing osteosarcoma. Girls appeared to be unaffected. However, 
When the researchers ran a follow-up study in 2011, they were unable to replicate their results. They concluded that there was no link between fluoride and osteosarcoma. Regardless of if they believe fluoridated water to be risky, scientists on both sides of the issue agree that the risks of fluoridated water haven't been studied to the extent one would expect. Perhaps this is because government forces are blocking any attempts at study. Possibly, but the lack of evidence cuts both ways. Further study on water fluoridation could prove fluoride safety as well. Another hitch in this theory is that water fluoridation is common practice in many countries outside the U.S. Chile has explored fluoridating milk. If fluoridation really is risky, all of these countries must be in on the conspiracy. Overall, I give this theory a 4 out of 10. It's clear there's some risk associated with fluoride, but at the concentrations typically used in the United States, that risk may be no more severe than stained teeth. It's consistent with what we already know about Manhattan Project officials to think they would cover up any deadly effects of their fluoride production. That idea of an evil, manipulative force lies at the heart of two more out-there conspiracies we'll briefly touch on next. The first theory revolves around a top-secret World War II program that ran concurrently with the Manhattan Project called Project Rainbow. Project Rainbow was an alleged program to use electromagnetic coils to shield U.S. warships from Axis radars. On October 28, 1943, Project Rainbow officials tested their electromagnetic technology on the USS Eldridge, which was docked off of the Philadelphia Naval Shipyard with a full crew. When the experiment began, the USS Eldridge disappeared. Not just from radar, but even observers saw it vanish. Moments later, the USS Eldridge reappeared off the coast of Norfolk, Virginia, over 300 miles away. The journey was deadly for the USS Eldridge's crew. Some lived but suffered mental breakdowns and were unable to describe what they'd seen, and some vanished entirely. Perhaps their bodies disintegrated, or maybe they're trapped in some other dimension or another phase of existence. Explanations for what occurred vary. Some argue that the USS Eldridge transported to another dimension, where those on board made contact with interdimensional beings who are evolved far beyond human capabilities. These highly evolved beings provided key information about the science behind atomic energy, which was relayed and implemented in the Manhattan Project. After the strange occurrence with the USS Eldridge, the Navy shut down Project Rainbow and transferred key scientists, such as Dr. John Eric von Neumann, to the Manhattan Project, where he spent the remainder of World War II developing an atomic bomb. The main problem with this conspiracy theory is the complete lack of evidence to support it. Military records include a code name Rainbow, but it was a term for the Rome-Berlin-Tokyo axis, not a secret project. As for von Neumann, he was employed as a professor at the time he was purported to be involved with Project Rainbow. Finally, the USS Eldridge's logs showed it to be docked in New York on the day of the experiment, not Philadelphia as conspiracy theorists claim. Well, the entire story of the Philadelphia experiment stems from a single source, Carlos Allende. 
He never publicly spoke of this experiment until 10 years after it supposedly took place and has never produced any concrete evidence to support his claims. We give this theory a 1 out of 10. Our next out there conspiracy theory focuses on Bohemian Grove, a private 2,700-acre retreat in the Redwood Forest of Sonoma County, California, where members of the wealthy and elite gather for annual meetings. Actual Bohemian Grove attendees have included former President Bill Clinton, both former President Bushes, Walter Cronkite, Clint Eastwood, Henry Kissinger, and J. Robert Oppenheimer. In September 1942, Oppenheimer attended the retreat as a guest of James B. Conant and Vannevar Bush of the War Department. Seven other notable Manhattan Project figures also attended that year, including Ernest Lawrence, who recommended Oppenheimer as the director of the Los Alamos test site. We also know that in previous years' retreats, Lawrence had met with donors who funded early studies into atomic particles. These meetings and Lawrence's financial ties could serve as evidence of a connection between the mysterious Bohemian Club and the Manhattan Project. There's too little to go on to know the extent of that connection or why the Bohemian Club would want to control nuclear bomb development. Even conspiracy theorists have yet to offer an educated guess. The Bohemian Club is a favorite among conspiracy theorists who believe the Grove's elite attendees are part of a shadowy cabal to control world affairs or institute a one-world government. Maybe they have a secret plan for the atom bomb, one we're still yet to find out about. But based on all available reports, the actual activities that occur at Bohemian Grove are mostly just binge drinking and outdoor urination. It's a big, expensive party where businessmen and politicians go to unwind. There's not enough evidence of wrongdoing to take this theory seriously. I give it a 1 out of 10. In the 70 years since the Manhattan Project began, countless conspiracy theories have sprung up around the top-secret program. It's easy to see why. The real project involved secret hidden towns across America, a massive radiation sickness cover-up, and a fundamental shift in international power dynamics. Overall, we believe the official story of the Manhattan Project. J. Robert Oppenheimer was probably not a spy. We probably have not been visited by aliens, and fluoride is probably not a mind control scheme that stretched across decades and over continents. While the theories we discussed today may not be very believable or well-supported, anything is possible when it comes to such a secret, massive project. There may be more that hasn't been revealed to the public, and perhaps it never will be. In the meantime, we'll keep our eyes open for the world's conspiracies, coincidences, and most complicated stories. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. If you want to hear more Conspiracy Theories, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. Tell us your favorite Conspiracy Theories on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, and on Twitter at Parcast Network. Join us next week for more Conspiracy Theories. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. 
And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Conspiracy Theories is written by Angela Jorgensen and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. 